From Michigan Radio, this is the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. I'm Zoe Clark. Don't need to tell you, we are now just four days away from Election Day. Earlier this week, we had our final Issues and Ale event before Tuesday, November 8th. The political roundtable in person in front of a live audience. We talked about where things stand in the race for governor. The questions voters have about the constitutional amendments on the ballot and why voter turnout is going to be key, which is why we're seeing surrogates from former President Obama to former President Pence all coming to Michigan to stump for their party. It's all going to be about a turnout game, and that's clearly what's going to transpire here. And we should point out that that these are not persuasion visits, that these are not, hey, maybe you haven't made up your mind on who to vote for, so let me, you know, use the, the credibility that I have to convince you to vote for them, that these are GOTV, get out the vote. We'll bring you that conversation later in the hour. But first, someone else who is counting down until Tuesday is Justin Roebuck. He is the Ottawa County Clerk. Welcome back, Justin. Thanks for having me, Zoe. It's great to be here. Okay, in a bit, we are going to play our favorite game of Ask the Clerk with you. Questions from listeners about what to expect on Tuesday. But first, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about the actual timing of when folks might be able to start hearing results on Tuesday. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, across the state of Michigan, results are reported essentially as they're received in most jurisdictions across the state. So for a lot of people, for a lot of places, in-person results will begin to sort of trickle in, you know, around the nine o'clock hour. And then, of course, we'll build after that. In-person results are able to be transmitted more quickly because the workflow is different in the precinct when a voter is actually casting their ballot in a tabulator. In an absentee counting board, it's a little more complicated because we're doing a number of security checks before the ballot is open. And then there's a workflow, of course, of opening the envelope, taking a ballot out of the envelope, flattening the ballot. These are all done in bipartisan teams. And so it takes longer. And the more ballots you have, the longer it takes to count those ballots. And so ultimately, final results are probably not going to be on election night. The Secretary of State's office has really been trying to get the word out, trying to make sure that folks understand that this is a normal process. Absolutely. And when you think about it, you know, rarely in elections are all results reported on election night. This is a process that has always taken a lot of time. And as the number of absentee ballots increases, of course, that length of time to process those ballots corresponds to the number that you have. We are all about accuracy. Speed is important, and we like to be timely in making sure that our voters, media, and candidates have results quickly. But we are very focused on accuracy. It could also appear that a certain candidate, candidates or proposals are winning, but the fact is that because absentee ballots haven't been counted yet, the results are going to change throughout the night. Yes, absolutely. And we've seen that in local races across you know, my county and across the state. We've seen that in statewide and in national races. It's really important not to count your eggs before, count your chickens before you the hatch or whatever that saying is. I don't know. But basically, it's, it's really important to, to know that results can shift and they have shifted in the past and likely will shift based on the number of absentee ballots. And that's a perfectly normal process. Absentee votes are counted just like every other vote. And so it's important that those voters have their voice heard as well. And we could see some results changing. Okay, Justin, it is time to turn to our favorite game. 
Justin, are you ready? That is amazing. I am ready. And we get this question a lot. So let's get to this perennial question about voting in person. It makes it a whole lot quicker when you bring your ID to the polls on Tuesday. But if you don't bring your ID, you can still vote. What happens? Absolutely. That's a great question. And you're you're exactly right. Voters who come into the uh, precinct and who do not have their ID do have an option to still cast a normal ballot. And basically, as long as the voter is registered in the poll book and the name and the address that they fill out on their application matches what is in the poll book on their registered voter address, they're able to cast a ballot by signing an affidavit of voter not in possession of photo ID. So it's a document that you sign that you say, I am who I say I am, and I'm not in possession of photo ID. So that voter can then sign the document and proceed as normal. And what's great about Michigan and same-day registration now is that if for some reason you have moved or are not on the poll list of voters where you go to vote, you can also go to your clerk's office and with proper identification, you can register same day and cast a ballot as well. Let's turn to this question on Twitter, wondering, hey, where can I see my ballot before Tuesday? That's another great question and definitely one that we get frequently. The best spot, I would say, is michigan.gov slash vote. So you can type in michigan.gov slash vote wherever you are. Works great on mobile devices as well. You can view your precinct, your polling location, where you would go to vote. You can see your sample ballot, which is obviously every candidate and all the proposals on your ballot. And then your clerk's contact information and open office hours are listed there as well. So it's a lot of great information for voters. michigan.gov slash vote. This one is actually coming from inside the building. This was a question from a staffer here at Michigan Radio. They have been listening to Michigan Radio a lot, and so they've heard about election challengers. They're curious what happens if they're at the polls and actually someone challenges them. What happens then? Well, that's a great question, actually. And obviously, there's been a lot of talk about challengers and observers of the election process. Of course, observers and challengers are allowed in the precinct important part of our transparency on election day. Election challengers under Michigan law can only challenge a voter on very specific things. If they believe, they have reason to believe or evidence to believe that the voter is A, not of age, of legal age, so 18 essentially or older, B, if they believe the voter is not a United States citizen, and C, if they believe the voter is not actually registered at the address where they are listed on the poll book. So there's a challenge procedure that occurs in the precinct when this happens. And I will say this is very rare, Mm -hmm. um, but of course, under Michigan law, we have to follow that. So the challenger actually has to address the challenge, not to the voter. So voters should not feel like they're going to be intimidated in any way when they walk into the precinct. But if the challenger happens to have this challenge prepared, they would go to the precinct chairperson and the precinct chairperson would walk through those questions with the challenger. The voter is actually given a ballot, and it's called a challenged ballot. It's a regular ballot, but it is identifiable. So we take the voter's ballot number, and that ties to the voter. We write it in a very small, inconspicuous place on the ballot itself, and then we conceal that number. So it's kind of a multi-step process. And then the voter casts the ballot in the tabulator. And the reason for that is that if we have to go back after the election Mm -hmm. and litigate the validity of that voter's vote, we could actually find it and pull it out because normally your ballot is not identifiable at all. So it's a a little bit of minutia there and a very, very rare occurrence that someone actually gets challenged like that. But that's the process we would follow. 
Let's talk finally about this concern about intimidation. Uh, We held an Issues and Ale event Wednesday evening. We're going to listen to a part of that conversation later in the hour. But one of the audience members talked about working elections years ago and how much she enjoyed working at the polls on Election Day. She said this year, however, she's not going to. And that's because she's concerned about safety. Justin, I know this is something you are working on as our clerks across the state. Can you let us know what precautions you are putting in place to keep polling places safe places? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a great point. You know, we value our election workers so much. Just in Ottawa County alone, we have 1,200 election workers, over 30,000, I believe, in the state of Michigan. And these people play such a critical role, and we need to ensure their safety and make sure that our election workers feel comfortable in the precincts. One of the things that we're doing is working really closely with law enforcement. We've held a couple of tabletop exercises with our local clerks. The state has also been really fantastic in giving us some resources and de-escalation tactics and being able to respond quickly if there is an event that is potentially threatening or harmful to an election worker. But I will say this, law enforcement is very, very aware of election day and of our precinct locations and able to respond quickly. And what we've been telling our workers in training is never feel bad about reaching out and calling 911 if anyone feels intimidated in any way or concerned for their safety. So we want to and we need to prepare as election officials for any inevitability. But I think what's important for me to realize is you know, the vast majority of Michigan citizens and voters care about their community and they want to protect this process just as much as any of us do. And I think serving as an election worker is such a cool opportunity to see democracy in action. It's an opportunity to serve your neighbors because in so many places, that's who you're going to see when you walk in to, to cast your ballot. And it's a great community event. I love going into the polling place with my kids. I have a four year old, and seven year old. And showing them that process and getting them excited about the process is a big part of what we do as a family to kind of celebrate our country. And I think I would encourage everyone and anyone to step up and serve in this capacity because it's a necessary work and it's really a great way to see and learn more about the process as well. Justin Roebuck, he is the Ottawa County Clerk. Justin, we're all wishing you and all 82 other county clerks across the state the best of luck on Tuesday and maybe into Wednesday. Thanks so much, Zoe. It's great to be here and encourage everyone to get out and vote. This week, Chad Livengood, politics editor of Detroit News, Clara Hendrickson, politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press, and Rick Pluta, senior capital correspondent of the Michigan Public Radio Network. We all got together for the final Issues and Ale event before Election Day. We were in Ferndale at Rust Belt Market with a big ol' audience. And Rick Pluta, my co-host of It's Just Politics, started out with a note for judges across Michigan during this election cycle. Judges don't plan on getting much sleep over the, uh, you know, the next few days because... Or the, weeks. Yeah, actually, yeah. Or I, months. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least after that, there is a, a bit of a breather that uh, election lawsuits will be filed fast and furious and uh, almost instantaneous decisions in some cases will be demanded. Uh, they will be appealed. Some of them will go up to the state Supreme Court and we're going to be 
uh, I, I don't want to say as busy, but we will be very busy on the judicial front as well as we will be covering the, um, you know, the actual campaigns and reactions and vote totals. I want to continue talking about this and I also want to again give folks an opportunity to talk specifically about what to expect on election day and then the hours and days and weeks and months afterwards. Clara, you and I talked, was it just last week? Oh my goodness, there is no time in yeah. election. Um, but you were on It's Just Politics last Friday, and you did this story about challengers at the polls. Can you talk a little bit about what um, folks are expecting to happen at the polls or hoping not to happen on Tuesday, November 8th? Sure. So let's go in our time machine and travel back to 2020. We all probably remember what happened at the then TCF Center in Detroit, um, where uh, the day after the election, when Biden started pulling ahead in the unofficial results, there were calls out to Republicans for them to basically kind of descend on the counting room in Detroit. A lot of them encircled uh, tables demanding that election workers stop the count. A lot of the folks who were in that counting room in Detroit are planning to return again this year and have engaged in trainings to um, instruct challengers to observe the process. So we're going to see a lot of the same folks returning. Whether or not we see the same kind of uh, chaos, that's sort of to, to be answered. Meanwhile, Rick, clerks uh, across the state, though, as well as the Secretary of State, have really been trying to get out in front of some of these issues, right? So we're talking about issues of things that we might see at the polls, and the clerk's really saying we're ready for it. Um, I'm also thinking about kind of trying to inoculate against misinformation that could come in terms of the timing of when we get results. Um, the Secretary of State and the State Bureau of Elections is trying to get in front of that by holding a lot of of online briefings with journalists to say, here's what's going to happen, here is how the results are tallied, here is how absentee ballots are counted and when they are counted, and you know when are they unsealed so that they can be run through the machines and stuff like that, in hopes of getting in front of election misinformation about things like what happens when early results are tallied and it seems like things are trending in a particular direction in some precincts and counties and then all of a sudden they trend in a different direction. That's actually not a surprising result. Well, and to that point, Beth LeBlanc in your shop, was it just today or yesterday, had this great piece about, you know, early in the night you might see a quote-unquote red mirage and then right. it might not, it might turn a little more purple. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so the in-person voting, like the polling is already showing, we, we went and asked last week in our poll, have you voted yet? And if you have, you know, who you're voting for, and if you do, if, if you voted, if you are going to vote on election day, who you plan to vote for? And on a, uh, the uh, Whitmer supporters were uh, voting absentee were breaking 70% in favor of Whitmer and 30% for uh, Tudor Dixon. So it already shows that the Democrats are banking a whole bunch of absentee ballots out there. The absentee ballots are counted differently. Uh, they're not done at your precinct. They're done in a sort of a separate. Um, they call they're it, kind of treated like their own precinct. Yeah, it's their own precinct. It's, it's they call it an absentee uh, counting board. It essentially, is its own little precinct. That's what that's what the TCF center was set up for in Detroit to be this mass precinct for the whole city, and and that's why it took so long. Is that it was just it was like like every precinct, all 230 precincts in Detroit 
combined uh, and 40 to 50% of the vote all done in one place. And so it was, it was a much more uh, dense operation and that, that's replicated in however many cities we have in the state. I've always lose track of that, but just think about that is on every single scale from Chesterfield Township to uh, Decatur. And, and so this is, this is the challenge is that those in-person results come in first and then the, then the absentee ballots usually follow and trail behind and they can trail behind by hours. And that's what, that's what uh, pollster Richard Zuba has, has dubbed the red mirage that you might see is that it look, might look like Tudor Dixon is ahead at, at 10 o'clock and then here comes Kent County's absentee ballots uh, or, or, or certainly Wayne County will, will make, a, make a big, big difference. But um, I actually tell people that to watch like Kent County and Oakland County and, and Macomb as it, as it relates to absentees because more and more uh, Democrats, uh, you know, are voting ahead of time, and that's going to really change things, and and uh, and it'll you know influence all kinds of elections down the and ballot. We should also point out that absentee ballots are much more convenient for voters. Uh, they're not necessarily more convenient for vote tallyers. That the ballots need to be removed from their sleeves, the signatures need to be checked. That it's it's a more time-consuming process, so it takes longer for those votes, those actual numbers to be counted and everyone gets to see them. Okay, well, before we dig into the just pure politics of where these races stand, I do quickly, Clara, want to turn to you and ask, there's going to be this thing called pre-processing. I know, and instantly you kind of are just like, yawn. Eyes glazed. I know, but it's been this huge issue in the state legislature. There was actually finally some bipartisan compromise. Governor Whitmer signed these bills to allow two days of pre-processing. Can you explain just what pre-processing is and why it matters in this context of getting absentee ballots ready to start tabulating? So this has sort of been something that election officials have been calling for for over two years now. Ahead of the 2020 election, they anticipated because it was the first major statewide election where every voter had a right to vote absentee and it was held during the COVID-19 pandemic that they were going to see a surge in the number of voters casting an absentee ballot, which as, as Rick noted, are more time consuming to process. You have to check the signature, open the envelope, look at the ballot stub number, tear off the stub, flatten it, feed it through the scanner. So there's a lot of steps involved. So what uh, Governor Whitmer and the GOP-led legislature agreed upon at this sort of final hour here ahead uh, of the election was pre-processing that would, would allow election officials to open the envelope and then just basically pull out that, that inner envelope and just look at the ballot stub number. They can't run the ballot through the tabulator, which is where there's, that's really the time-consuming part of the process, clerks have told me. So... This wasn't necessarily the time saver that election officials had hoped for, and in fact, we're seeing a lot of really big cities in Michigan opting not to take advantage of this pre-processing. And I should note that um, one analysis from the Bipartisan Policy Center found that a majority of states that allow election officials to open um, ballots before election day also allow them to feed those ballots through the tabulator, which is why you tend to have quicker results coming from those states. We have early voting, we don't have early tabulating. And that, that is, that's the real key here. And other states, big states, Florida, Texas, there's a dozen of them that, that, that allow early 
tabulating. And that's really the distinction that we don't have here. And, and it's why everything basically waits to, to election day. And imagine just throwing all this labor into someone. Just imagine, um, so in so, some cities, some of the bigger cities, they, they've, they've gone to the expense of buying um, a letter uh, opener machines. Right. Um, right. But some, some little municipalities, they gotta cut every one of them open. Um, and just think about how long it takes you to cut all your mail open. And they gotta do like tens of thousands of absentee ballots in, in mid-size cities and so I mean that's that's just one example of or if you're just in some township where you have township of 2000 middle of the state you got um, um, uh, you know 1500 people vote in an election like this and 750 of them send in absentee ballots and you got three or four workers uh, they gotta go through 750 ballots plus the, all the other ballots there uh, I mean there's there's so much more hand-holding involved and and for security purposes to make sure there isn't cheating and such and all of this, I know I keep going like, and then we're going to get to the pure politics, but we still have to talk about the nerd part, which is all of this, too, um, is the fact that we are seeing so many more absentee ballots, Rick, because in 2018, Michigan voters voted for um, no absentee. No reason uh, absentee no voting. No reason absentee voting. You know, we voted for this new idea, but not necessarily the processes to put into place to make it faster. Well, as these guys pointed out, it, it might be a new idea in Michigan. It's not right. a new idea across most of yeah. the country. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's this almost existential argument that exists in the legislature and has for as long as I've been covering Lansing is that the easier you make it to vote, the easier you make it to cheat. And that that's going to lead to skewed results, especially in places where lots of people are going to vote, cities. Um, and so we can't do that without some corresponding check on accuracy that in, in many respects doesn't exist. Okay, let's jump in to these huge, big statewide races. Let's start with the marquee race, which is the race for governor. Chad, your paper, along with WDIV, has some latest polling out. I certainly don't want to only have the top line be about what the polls show, but I would love to use some of that polling as context for where we find the race for governor now, you know, four days out. Our poll shows the governor up nine points. This, was, this poll was conducted the two, three days right after the last debate at Oakland University. and uh, But it also shows uh, Dana Nessel the Attorney General with a narrow one-point lead, with well within the margin of error, uh, over uh, uh, Matt DiPerno, Republican attorney from Kalamazoo, and and then shows Jocelyn Benson with a ten-point lead over Christina Caramo, her challenger. And so, uh, what what's our takeaway here? I mean, as I noted earlier, um, Gretchen Wimber has already has a lot of votes in, that, are, that are are in the in the can, done, ready to go. Um, Tudor Dixon's going to have to have a huge surge um, uh, to overcome this uh, deficit, and and it's and then it's then it's the uh, what's the, the the race down ballot? I mean, Dana, I think the, the AG's race is the most fascinating. I mean, we can have a scenario where we have a Demo we win it, we elect a Democratic governor, re-elect a Democratic governor, and we get a Republican Attorney General, uh, as we did in 2002, and so. Um, but uh, you know, it's all going to be about a turnout game, and uh, that's that's clearly what's going to 
transpire here, and that's why we're seeing, you know, you know, President Obama coming into town, and and lots of campaign rallies focused on, you know, Bernie Sanders is coming to Ann Arbor and try to turn out some young voters. We've got Vice President Pence coming for Tom Barrett in the in the seventh congressional district, and Bill Heisinger yep. uh, in Southwest West West Michigan, which kind of suggests like what's going on there. Like, is are they getting a little nervous? Uh, and, and and so there's there's obviously a lot of movement still on the ground, and I don't think we can sit here and tell everyone what's going to happen. But you've got Mike Pence coming in in the 7th Congressional District, which is you know perhaps the tightest race in the country. And you've got Barack Obama coming in for the entire Democratic ticket. And we should point out that, that these are not persuasion visits, that these are not, hey, maybe you haven't made up your mind on who to vote for, so let me you know, use the, the credibility that I have to convince you to vote for them, that these are GOTV, get out the vote, that, that we don't care about your, we're, we're not worried about your decision for who you're gonna vote for if you vote. We need you to get out and vote. Yeah, that's, Mike, that's the game right now. And be clear, Mike Pence is not going to Okemos to persuade moderates. He's going to Country Mill, Cider Mill in Charlotte, which is one of the greatest uh, cider mill in the 7th Congressional District. <laughs> You're a fan. And it's to get people to get out and vote in the 7th Congressional District. Clara, what are you hearing when you go out and you talk to voters? I mean, there has been such an interesting shift, I think, in enthusiasm, particularly, I'll say, for Democrats since the Dobbs decision. I'm curious what you're hearing when you talk to voters about motivation to vote, reasons to vote, if um, the reasons are different. I mean, it's just sort of this push and pull between abortion, inflation, abortion, inflation. And we had a poll commissioned by the Free Press in September had abortion topping economic issues as the key thing that's sort of driving voters this election cycle. Um, We've seen some shifts in, in polls that have come out later, but it kind of feels like both candidates in the gubernatorial election have tried to distance themselves from both issues. Whitmer acknowledging in an ad, hey, I can't do much about large macroeconomic forces, but I'm trying to. Governors cannot control inflation. <laughs> right. Global inflation. Global inflation. Right. Thank you. For and that. Dixon trying to convince voters that my personal views on abortion uh, aren't at issue in the gubernatorial election because there's this ballot proposal, Proposal 3, that would enshrine a right to abortion in the state constitution, so you can vote for that and vote for me as governor. So both You would candidates. suddenly think that being a governor in Michigan has no power. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, that's potentially one takeaway from both of those uh, those talking points. Of course, you know, I think uh, the issues can be intertwined in ways that both candidates sure. don't necessarily acknowledge. The, the Tudor-Dixon position, which is, I'm opposed to abortion, I'm opposed to abortion except in instances to save the life of the pregnant person, and you can vote for Proposal 3, and you can still vote for me to register your support for abortion rights and your opposition to you know what you see about the state of the economy and whatever is just kind of amazing. What's also amazing is that the state's premier anti-abortion organization, Right to Life of Michigan, is on board with that message, which is you know so simultaneously the candidate for governor can advise you go ahead and vote for that if you want, even even if I'm not, but it's not really going to make a difference. Of course, who you elect to be governor and who you elect to the legislature could very likely have a profound impact 
you know, even with this ballot proposal, on what happens vis-a-vis -vis abortion rights, um, and actually to um, courts, because if there's one thing I know in 30 plus years of covering Michigan politics and courts is that abortion proposals always go to the courts and exactly what the parameters are of the language uh, that's, that's in them. So proposal three, no matter what anyone tells you, is not the end of the story on abortion rights in Michigan. That was Rick Pluta, co-host of It's Just Politics and senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network, joined by Clara Hendrickson, politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press, and Chad Livengood, politics editor at the Detroit News. Still do come. We continue our It's Just Politics issues and ale political roundtable in person at Ferndale's Rust Belt Market. That's coming up after this break. Stick around. You're listening to the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside from Michigan Radio. We are going to go back now to our live audience in Ferndale, our last Issues and Ale event before the November election. We turn to questions from the audience about all things elections and politics in Michigan right now. My name is Howard. I'm on a local school board. Hi, Howard. Hello. So much of the ads and the, the uh, debates that have been happening over the last uh, month or two or three have been related to the last four years, either with education in particular about COVID and lockdowns and uh, vaccines and masks. Um, very little, if anything, has been talked about what the next four years are gonna look like. What have you determined of either uh, gubernatorial candidate of what 2023 through 26 is gonna look like educationally in the state of Michigan? Gosh, I think so much of the conversation right now about education in this gubernatorial race has been so much about parental rights and culture wars and book banning, right? Curious. And the idea that parents are being shut out of what's happening in schools. Um, why we're not talking about this, one, if, if Tudor Dixon wins, it's because her campaign put their finger on this parental uh, control rights issue and, 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 and the Whitmer campaign was thrown off by it. Which, Chad, really quickly, can I jump in, which goes back to what I want to say that talking about Virginia, right, and the gubernatorial race, and that really was how Glenn Youngkin seemed to have won, which was yep. this idea of pinpointing parental rights and this issues of parents not in the classroom. And ginning it up at the local level. I mean, there's a reason why the DeVos family's Great Lakes Education Project is is playing in school board races this this cycle, seemingly at a, at a much more visible rate than they ever have or, or just, and just getting them. And now we see, I, I just yesterday, I got a, a mailer from Equality Michigan trying to basically back uh, a different slate of candidates in Howell School Boards. Yeah. Oh. I mean, so, um, I mean, in the glossy type of, 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 of mailers we're getting in, in school board elections this year, never seen it before. So, um, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, this is like the, the, the big jump ball in this election right now is, 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 is there enough parental rage out there that's going to help to Dixon, or is it this kind of some of this just ginned up um, by uh, uh, the Great Lakes Education Project and, and other allies? Um, but 
how, to get the larger question, like why we're not talking about bigger issues, um, I, you know, I'm I'm all about that. I mean, we we we've got an education funding system that uh, is clearly got problems. I mean, when I was at Cranes just a few years ago, I wrote about an, an intersection not too far from here, uh, in in Madison Heights, the dividing line between the Madison School District and um, the one to the north and Lamphere, yes, You're and how on place. one side of the street. Um, the uh, the students got $6,900 a year uh, per pupil funding back then, and it's a little more now. And the other side of the street, they got $9,000 a year per, per pupil funding in the same city. Um, and this is just a, a relic from Proposal A. Uh, so, Chad, you are saying that the promise of Proposal A has not been fulfilled, no matter what we were told by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, by Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, and by um, the House Speaker. And by, and by Governors Rick Snyder, Jennifer Granholm, John Engler. Who um, was the governor behind Proposal Yes. I mean, everybody, every politician who told you Proposal A worked is, is not being truthful. And you can find it in and out of the suburbs of Detroit, everywhere. You can find it in, in other places uh, across the state. And nobody's out there talking about this because you know why? Because it's not easy to talk about. It's it's complicated, uh, and parental rights is a nice, like, quick uh, soundbite, and it's easy, and it's, it's it's more of a debate point. But getting in the nuance of this, or um, I mean, this is just this is goes right over the voters' heads, and well, and that's why yeah, that's why we're not talking about you know longer term issues about how is Michigan going, going to be uh, an economic powerhouse in the, in the future? How are we going to remain a top ten population state? No one's even talking about that. Uh, we don't we don't have any kind of goal orientation toward that. We are just focused on these little skirmishes uh, over over uh, you know books and, and taught you know. In the library in Dearborn. Okay. Uh, Brett. Hi, Brett. Hi. Um, so many of the conversations that we've had have mentioned the word court, although our courts, or at least seats on the courts, are on the ballot as well. Yeah. Are there seats uh, that are on this uh, cycle that you would say are bellwether to how some of these cases are likely to turn out? I mean, Such a good question. Yeah, I mean, at the Democratic Convention, Justice Bernstein just kind of like went there and said, you know, Abortion is going to be decided by the Michigan Supreme Court. He just kind of went there and just said that. Because and, Proposal 3 is going well, to go there. And so let's, let's quickly... Or if it doesn't, then the 1931 law will be decided by the Supreme Governor Court. And there's Governor Gretchen Whitmer's case, right? Yes. yes. So let's You're set right. the table very quickly, specifically about the Michigan Supreme Court, of which there are two open seats right now. We have two incumbents running, someone who has was nominated by the Democratic Party, someone else. So that first person being Justice Burns. Bernstein, the second person being Justice Zara. Um, Bernstein nominated by Democrats, Zara being nominated by Republicans. So you also have a Republican non-Supreme Court justice running and a Democrat non-Supreme Court justice running who's actually a sitting member of the State House of Representatives. I just wanted to kind of like put that out there in terms of that there are two seats. Um, and Rick, to that point, the 1931 abortion law that um, was dormant pre-Dobbs, then came you know, back to life post-Dobbs, but is now not back to life because of a court injunction, is likely, could be, something that could come in front of the Michigan Supreme Court. And to Chad's point, Justice Bernstein did talk about openly. He said abortion, he said abortion rights are on the ballot in the Supreme Court races. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll just 
you know, I think that, that abortion rights is before the state Supreme Court right now because we've got two motions before the court asking the Supreme Court to take up the question of whether or not it is protected under the, uh, under the Michigan Constitution. Mm -hmm. And we, I mean, we're not going to see, obviously, a decision before the election, but we could see a decision between the election and the end of the year. And don't forget, we've also got a chief justice who is departing the court in the very near future as well. One of the interesting things, and can I just be like a dork here, because one of the really fascinating things, so first, if folks are willing to, raise your hand, how many folks have already voted absentee? I'm not going to ask you how you, whoa, Ferndale, that's probably like 80, 90%, no? I'm really You just clogged up the clerk's office. Yeah, right, it's because of, it's all because of you that we're not going to know the results. Hope you don't need a permit anytime soon. But there is this really interesting dynamic when you look at those nonpartisan, right? So when you get to the state Supreme Court, it's in the nonpartisan. So whether or not you voted straight party or not, right, you still vote for the Michigan Supreme Court. Again, even though the parties initially, the first time uh, that justice is running, nominate that candidate. But there is this interesting thing um, I guess Rick Pluto, where it says like Supreme Court justice. Fascinating. And they don't tell you who they were nominated by right. because it's nonpartisan. And right. actually, justices have had interesting ways of trying to remind people. Um, my favorite one was uh, there was a Democratic Party nominated justice named uh, Conrad Mallet, and his campaign slogan was, You haven't finished your ballot till you voted for Mallet. <laughs> You know, and, and he was always reelected, so I guess arguably it worked. So jingles work, yeah. So my name is Kimberly Beebe, Hi, and Kimberly. I live in Ferndale, okay. Michigan. Cool, cool. <laughs> so um, I have been very heavily involved in the women's rights community here for like 20 years. I was actually president of my local NOW chapter mm -hmm. for 10 years. People across the country are watching this state because of this proposal to see what's going on and see what's going to happen. We saw what happened in Kansas. What do the youth, what do the, do you think the effect for women coming out for this will have on the election? Hmm, it's a great question. Clara, do you want to jump in? The one sort of data point that I've seen reported out, there's been some analysis of voter registration that suggests that um, there's been an increase in, in women registering to vote compared to men. So there seems to be some enthusiasm that could drive out turnout you know, among women for this issue of reproductive rights. Of course, this is an issue that inspires strong passions on both sides of the debate. So I think we're going to see a surge in turnout both from folks who want to see it added to the Constitution and folks who are desperately trying to see it defeated. Remind me what the, uh, the number of uh, signatures was? 735,000? Yeah, yeah. yeah. 735,000 uh, signatures, a record. Every single one of those signatures is a public record that uh, campaigns, political parties, and others can go. And Andrea, who's worked on campaigns, is nodding her head. That, that people, I mean, no, there are companies that their business is to go in, collect those signatures, put them into databases, and then, uh, um, you know, with their addresses, maybe compiling them with other contact information, and then selling them to campaigns. Every single one of those names, every single one of those addresses is a public record. And 
Right to Life of Michigan every few years would run a ballot campaign, one, to pursue a policy goal, but also because it refreshed their database of active supporters that they could contact for GOTV, get out the vote operations for candidates and causes that uh, they supported. So now on the pro-choice column, there are 735,000 signatures that are already part of GOTV databases that can be contacted by, you know, primarily, I assume, Democratic and progressive candidates and causes to be combined with other databases to, you know, help try to win elections. I mean, that is, I mean, Zoe will remember this, that when I looked at those numbers, I was jumping up and down and wondering whether or not this is actually a game changer, not just right now, but in future elections. It's a power, it is potentially, I should say, a uh, powerful tool for um, democratic and progressive uh, campaigns. Before 2018, uh, when uh, this, this gal, Katie Faye, 28-year-old, went on Facebook and ranted about, about gerrymandering, who says, well, who wants to get rid of gerrymandering? And, and she built a huge movement from a Facebook group that got, a, that got a constitutional amendment on the ballot and then passed to create this Citizens Redistricting Commission. Before that, I mean, there was two entities in this, in this, in this, in this state you could go to to pass a, a ballot issue. It was Right to Life and the UAW, and even the UAW sucked at it. Um, I mean, cause, and they showed it in 2012 with their disastrous union ballot um, uh, initiative uh, that they you know, announced from Washington, D.C., and it was just really terrible. But, um, uh, but, but Right to Life was really the, the entity, and now it seems that Planned Parenthood and, and and ACLU will have uh, a, an even more stronger tool uh, and other entities to, to use. But, but, but there, there are some big what-ifs in there, and one of them was that voters uh, opposed to abortion, voters opposed to abortion rights, typically owned the field on intensity, willing interest in, in getting out and, and voting. And one of the reasons that maybe they topped that list was because the, of the protections that existed in Roe v. Wade. And so now we've, and instead, um, you know, the, these suburban voters in outer Oakland County, for example, would go out and vote what was deemed their economic interest as opposed to their interest in uh, abortion rights. Well, now we don't have Roe v. Wade, and this is, I mean, you can survey all you want, but the big test is when people actually go out and vote is where does the intensity lie? Is it in that perceived economic interest or is it in um, where voters, you know, a group of voters stand on a particular social question? Okay, so I have one more issue that I want to get to the State House and the State Senate. It has been nearly 40 years, uh, my entire lifetime, uh, that Republicans have run the show in the State Senate. Let me just do a quick roundtable of whether or not the, the State House changes uh, to Democrats, whether or not the State House changes uh, to the Senate, just the fact that this does feel like a jump ball, am I using that sports metaphor right? A jump ball, is that right? Yes, um, yes. For the first time is, is fascinating. 
one of the huge changes that we could see is Democrats gaining control of the state Senate for the first time um, in decades. Republicans have, have held the upper chamber since 1984. But there's another really big shift. And that is that right now in the state Senate, there are currently five lawmakers who represent the city of Detroit who live in Detroit. And Sylvia, State Senator Sylvia Santana is about to be the only black Detroiter who represents the nation's largest majority black city in the state Senate. So black uh, Democrats from Detroit will say that the possibility of uh, their party having a majority in the state Senate was really uh, coming off of, off of their backs, off the backs of black Detroiters' representation. So. One thing that I will be watching is whether or not uh, Democrats win majority of the state Senate, but also whether or not this pending voting rights lawsuit against the redistricting commission succeeds and the redistricting commission has to go back to the drawing board, do it all over again. Hi, my name is Jack. And uh, with Hi, Jack. all the issues that go on with the information, disinformation, misinformation that goes on, I know it's kind of like a more of a national thing, but I look at it as a statewide too, whereas, I don't know if you guys remember about the fairness doctrine that was kind of expired back in the 80s and it allowed, you know, platforms like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News to come out. And the way we view, unless depending on what you watch and how you watch it, me, I like to watch everything. I like to see everything and I like to see what people are thinking. But I find that a lot of people that I talk to, they like to go down one avenue, maybe two avenues. And it's very hard to have conversations, especially with all the conversations we've had tonight. And what I guess my question is, is are you guys in favor of bringing back something like that where we can all maybe have a different opinion on it, but still walk away saying these are the facts? We need more of these local conversations. Arnold has his point. Did we hear it? Were we civil? Kimberly has her points. Did we hear it? Were we civil? Absolutely. I hope everybody tonight doesn't feel like any of us on this table and anyone who's writing who are here tonight are coming from one perspective to try to get you to believe. All of us really fundamentally believe in the truth. And I think what we have to tune into is like the local resources that are at everyone's fingertips. You can totally listen to talk radio and cable television, and have people like yell at you about your opinions. Everything we said tonight is, here's the facts. And I think you saw that tonight. Okay, I want to go to Chad next, and I want to end with Clara. Yeah, I mean, I agree. The Fairness Doctrine is really an obsolete uh, um, legal tool, uh, given that there is, I mean, in newspapers, we used to be the gatekeeper, uh, and that, that's long gone. I mean, there, there are 14-year-olds on TikTok who are way more influential than all four of us combined. Uh, and, and so... And also have way better dance moves. And they get paid to do it. And yeah, so it's just, you just have to think about this, all, how everyone is, is a broadcaster now uh, in that regard. Everyone is, 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 a, is a... Everyone's a, a journalist. Everyone's got an opinion. I mean, so... There's just no uh, sort of going back now uh, with, with the internet and, and all the different ways that people can, can express themselves and not have to go through, um, you know, um, old, uh, old guard media like, like, like newspapers. Um, I, and so, but I will make a, a plug that newspapers still provide a community service uh, and they provide his, history, context, and standards that don't exist on, the, on much, of the, much of the internet, uh, and, and not just on newspapers, but, all, but radio stations and TV stations and others that are in this business and do this professionally day in, day out, 24 hours a day. 
And that is it for the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside, the last Friday before Election Day. I am Zoe Clark. April Bear will be back in the chair on Monday. Hey, have a good weekend. <laughs>